Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, what we talk about when we talk about politics, we discuss how difficult it is to discuss politics and political issues, particularly with our friends and loved ones who might have views different than our own. Jeff relays a story of a recent conversation among friends gone awry, and we consider the role that emotions, identity, and cognitive biases play in our political conversations. Lastly, we consider some ways in which we might have more productive conversations that help build understanding and hopefully don't harm our relationships. This conversation was recorded a few days before the 2020 presidential election. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, what we talk about when we talk about politics. So the fire pit has become my means of sanity uh, during this pandemic time because I've, I've come to realize that I'm not a tremendously social person. I don't need constant socialization. I don't need a hundred people around me, but I need five or six people I really like occasionally involved in a discussion. So I've been doing fire pits in the backyard. We're socially distanced. And I had one a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. We were having a good discussion. Everybody was having a good time. Some beer was involved, two or three beers in. The discussion suddenly starts to shift a little bit. Somebody brought up politics. Then I have some friends on this side and some friends on this side. So the friends on this side start to talk about this, and the friends on that side start to talk about that. And I engage in the beginning, and then at a certain point, I just turned away. I was like, I don't have anything else to say. I don't have anything more to add to this discussion. So I turned away, and I got involved in another discussion with the people on the other side. And I started talking about whatever I'm talking about. And then I don't even know how long, like maybe 20, 30 minutes later, I turned back, and one of my friends is louder than he was before. And my other friend is loud and crying and... Then the fire pit ends and people walk away and I, well, I'm, I'm left wondering, what just happened? Why did my friend start crying and why did this happen at this moment when we were having such a good time? So basically you have a situation where everybody agreed to be in a place because I think what you had told me it was like a book club conversation yeah. initially. So yeah. we know we're going to talk about this book. We're all having a good time. And then all of a sudden the topic changes to politics and people get emotional. And now they're heightened a little bit and they start maybe not yelling and arguing. But you know that feeling when you're having a conversation and all of a sudden you just start feeling that tension. You can almost feel it in your body. My heart's maybe beating a little faster because somebody's saying something that I disagree with or I think that that's wrong or I know that that's wrong and I'm going to prove that it's wrong or maybe you're going to say something and maybe you're not. And then before you know it, you're just kind of like in this discussion that you had no real plan to be in. And sometimes you can't find your way out. And before you know it, you're really upset with another person or, or something like that. And you're you're just emotionally not in a place where you can have a productive conversation anymore. Right. And I know this has happened to me. And when it starts to happen to me, my internal dialogue gets going and I'm upset but I can't pull myself out of this and I feel really emotional. And, you, you know, we've had conversations before where this has happened and, you know, I end up blowing up or something like that. And I, it, it, 
it sucks. But really, I think what it is is you get into that fight or flight place. It's actually, like you were mentioning before, while it's an emotional thing in your brain, your body is physically responded because of right. that. Like the heart rate and various other things have changed right. in your, yeah. Yeah. And your heart rate starts to go up. You feel warm. You, you feel tense and, and you really want to fight back or you want to just some people just withdraw completely. So there might have been somebody that you didn't notice that suddenly wasn't talking anymore for like an hour and just want, really wanted was to leave. Me. I flew. <laughs> you, you, you were the flight. Yeah. And they were the fight. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. And it's kind of too bad that almost you could be describing like probably any one of a number of political conversations that are taking place anywhere in America or possibly even the world right now, right? And certainly the large cultural conversation that we're having is seems to be very emotionally charged. And I think no matter what side of any aisle you might fall on, I think a lot of people are just really feeling like we're talking past each other and it's a lot of emotion and, and not a lot of productive talk going on, right? Yeah, because that was a specific conversation. But I have five conversations that fall into that similar category within the last couple of years. Hmm. I purposely didn't put names into that discussion, but anybody could throw their own names because you've had the discussion with your uncle here or you've had this discussion with your whatever here. Yeah, so I think that really what ends up happening here is when we kind of back into these conversations that we don't really plan on having, because whoever really sits around and goes, oh, we're going to have a political conversation. As a matter of fact, it seems to be something that people don't want to talk about and like they avoid it. And we end up having them. And typically, I think we either have them in situations where we feel really safe already because we know that the other person or people are really aligned to us and we know we could just kind of let loose. And, and then really, it's usually the kind of thing of like, we're all feeling our righteous indignation about how could these other people believe this or think this? And and it's it's really not, probably not that productive of a conversation anyway, but it, at least it doesn't feel threatening to you, right? Because everybody agrees with you. But when we get into these situations where we don't really know, and then there might be some other people who disagree, and then you said also alcohol is involved, which really affects our ability to reason effectively and also lowers our inhibitions. So we might be willing to say some things that we wouldn't normally say. We get into this situation where this emotional hijacking takes place. We feel these negative emotions very strongly. We feel them with a lot of energy. We go into fight or flight. We attack or withdraw. Our system to slow thinking basically and our ability to learn just is impaired, right? And we're almost being run by our emotional system one. And this makes me think of this idea. I had learned this a while back. I read this book probably like seven or eight years ago at this point called Difficult Conversations. And it really was useful to me because it gave me a framework for understanding what is going on in these kinds of moments when you have these conversations and difficult just meaning anything that's really hard to talk about. Politics definitely falls into that, right? And where really what it is, is it's three different conversations all the time. There's the fact-based, what happened conversation, you know, the actual fact of the matter, right, which may or may not be that easy to figure out, but there's that conversation. And I think that's the one that we feel like we think we're having most of the time. But there's also this emotional conversation where, you know, the emotions is, is really what's driving a lot of how we feel and very much comes into play when we feel like our identity is at stake. And that's the third part of the, the conversation, the identity piece, where we identify with all these different things and we make them a part of who we see ourselves as. And when we hear other people saying things to us or saying things in general that make it feel like our identity is being threatened, we react very emotionally. And, and this is the situation we end up in. And we don't really account for any of that stuff. And very quickly, what we end up doing is trying to convince other people that, no, this is the way it is. And this is right. And this is why. And then we just go back and forth and we get angrier and angrier and then people are crying and Jeff is sitting in the yard going, what happened? And the book club drifts off into the night, presumably. Yeah, because I think what uh, this conversation definitely uh, turns into the emotions section of the conversation and then steam rolls from there. And we talk a lot about this. What happens when the emotions start to take over? What happens when the heartbeat starts to race? What happens when you get into fight or flight mode is that you can't access system two as much. So you're not being as rational. You're not engaging in the facts of the situation. You're just suddenly 
angry at this person or offended by this person. And then all these things that we don't realize, all these biases in our head start to take over. So like confirmation bias starts to take over. So everything that you want to support your person or your team is right. Mm-hmm. And then whatever you hear from that other person is wrong. And you're not going to listen to that other person. You're just going to shut them down. And then they're also in this same mode. So they're not going to listen to what you say. They're going to shut you down. So at certain points, I've been like, what's the point of even having this discussion? I think that's part of the reason I turned away. I was like, what's the point of even engaging in this discussion? I'm just spouting my crap. You're spouting your crap. It's not going to lead to anything beneficial for either of us. Mm -hmm. It's motivated reasoning, right? Everybody kind of already knows what they believe before they started. And now we're just coming up with reasons why our side is right. It's not like I'm listening to what you have to say. I'm not asking you to present your case and then maybe changing my mind, right? Like none of that is happening. All that would be like slow system two kind of stuff. According to Peter Ditto, a psychology professor and researcher who studies motivated reasoning and what he refers to as hot cognition, the interface between passion and reason, people think that they think like scientists, but really they think like lawyers. Scientists don't care what the answer is. They look at the data and draw a conclusion. Lawyers know the conclusion they want to reach. Then they harness a bunch of facts to support their conclusion. And this is how we construct our political facts, whether we realize we're doing it or not. For more on this, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, and other cognitive biases, see the links in the show notes. I think by default, we just fall into some of these cognitive biases. Like, we know we have them, but once our emotions are running really high, we're even more prone to it than we normally are. Especially in this case, at the book club, it was like a particular person versus a particular person. Why this person is better than that person. And we automatically fall into this idea of loss aversion. Like, I'd rather your person be worse than my person. I don't even care if my person necessarily did everything right because I don't necessarily know all that information, I, which I think is another factor. It's like we're arguing on this idea that either of us has a certain amount of knowledge of the actual facts of the situation when in that moment and especially because we're in this heightened system one flight or flight we can't even access the little facts we maybe have in our head that we've actually memorized when there's you know boatloads of what actually happened during this person's whatever role they governorship with during this person's you know a presidency yeah. can you can you imagine trying to memorize every single moment of a presidency, what they did in every single situation, just in general, and then try to think about having that knowledge in your head and being able to access that while you're in a slightly buzzed <laughs> system one driven conversation uh, and be like, oh, well, on December 13th of whatever year, he signed this bill, which did this. And it, the, and then and then the pretense of like, and the positive outcome was this, whereas the confirmation bias, oh, but the negative out- outcome was this. And then, yeah, it's just, uh, I become very confused and frustrated about this. I, I feel like I'm coming over a little bit, uh, uh, the political discussion in general, I've become confused and frustrated about. I feel like I'm kind of reaching the tip of a hill. Well, one of the things that you talk about a lot is that we don't operate well with nuanced arguments. And we tend to take things that are complex and fill in a bunch of blanks and then draw a line from A to B that maybe is completely inappropriate, right? So I think part of this is just understanding that when we're talking about politics, first of all, like, what the hell does that even mean? You know, like, how do we define what a political conversation is? Somebody might be talking about how they hate this candidate. And that's what they have in their mind. And another person thinking all politics is BS and people just do nothing but lie. And somebody else is thinking about like the way the government actually works. And all these people come to it with different experiences and that's going to affect the way that they then interact. Right. And so I think recognizing number one, we don't all bring the same information into the conversation. And then number two, no matter what information we are bringing in, it's almost certainly not enough to explain the full complexity of this situation. It's not like I'm going to suddenly be like, oh, well, this person did this in 1912. And you're going to be like, oh, really? I didn't know that. My entire argument is wrong. I'm sorry. Let's talk about something else now. When has that ever happened? I've never seen that happen. Well, for me, 
politics. Let's put out what I would say politics is. So politics is theorizing on how we may possibly live better as a society and a civilization. So if I just had to define it really quickly in that moment. So even in that definition, theorizing, we don't necessarily know if our theory is right or wrong. And whatever information we have or whatever data we have as like scientifically probably isn't enough to fully prove that our theory is the correct way to go. So there should be room for some openness. But what ends up happening, and we both read and like Jonathan Haidt, what ends up happening is this uh, thing where our emotions tend to guide us. Uh, he, he always says the human mind is not a truth-seeking machine, but we like to think it is. He compares reason to a press secretary of the emotion, and we all tend to be morally motivated. We're justification machines. So it's self-righteousness is a natural effect of the way our brain works. Yeah, I think that the idea that we're constructing the way we want things to be and the way we think they should be. And there's some evidence that shows the more sophisticated you are, specifically in your politics, the better you are at constructing the world the way you want it to be, right? And, and so what you're doing really is you're creating this worldview consciously and unconsciously that is something that you already agree with, basically, right? And then you're justifying why it's the better view or why it's right. And you're not really doing that as uh, thoughtfully or as consciously as you think that you might be because you're absorbing so much of this stuff from your group around you and from the world that is around you and from whatever your information environment is. And, and there's just so many things that go into that. And then we end up feeling these things, uh, you know, very passionately. And everybody does this. Everybody experiences these things passionately. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's right or correct or reliable even way to look at the world. Yeah. Just as a quick sidebar, because you made me think of, um, I haven't read Jonathan Rawls' actual quotation, but this is Sean Carroll quoting Jonathan Rawls. And Jonathan Rawls' idea on how to build the best, most just society is that people can't know going into that society whether they are going to be in a good or bad position and therefore they're willing to accept going into that society because they know they will be in a fair or equal position mm -hmm. that is not necessarily the higher or the lower position we have all our vision of society as it is and in the way we see it expect it to function and want it to move in that way so essentially like outside of that what i realize and what we're talking about is what we talk about when we talk about politics is we don't actually talk about a politics. We talk about the emotions we have inside of us. And part of the reason this happens is because uh, we have this identity that's tied directly to these teams that we have, Republican versus Democrat, as we see. And these conversations end up being part of this identity conversation that you mentioned before. Right. What's really interesting today is that increasingly our political identities are overlapping with a whole bunch of other identities. Right. And that's just because of the way culture has kind of played out and the way the parties have evolved over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years that now we identify just very strongly with our political identity. It, it overlaps with a bunch of other ones. Due to this overlap of identities, political identity is now sometimes referred to as a mega-identity. According to political psychologist and author Liliana Mason, people have a huge number of different group identities, any of which might seem the most salient at any given time. In general, the identity at the top of your mind at any given moment most likely will be the identity facing the most pressing threat. But over the past few decades, the parties have become increasingly aligned with other social identities, including race, religion, and rural or urban location. And when these links start connecting our parties and other parts of our social identities, then all of this gets drawn into that one particular political competition. Once these mega identities get formed, we start to think of outgroup partisans as quite different from us, not just in terms of their political views, but also racially, religiously, and with any number of overlapping categories. We feel ever more socially distant from these outgroup members, which makes it easier to dehumanize them and to think about them with less generosity. So this idea that 
if somebody is saying something that we don't agree with and it doesn't agree with our politics, so to speak, then that's also basically like striking a blow at our identity in multiple ways. And we're going to feel that very strongly and emotionally. And that's where we start to react. And now all we can really do in that situation is I can discount what you're saying in order to make myself feel like, well, this person's just completely wrong. And so my identity is safe, right? Because what I want to do is I want to defend my identity. I want to defend my self-conception. And the other thing I could do is I could just argue with you. Let's use me and you as an example, right? I would have a really hard time at this point in my life just dismissing you as a moron who doesn't know what you're talking about because I know, you know, you're a fairly intelligent person. You're you're pretty well read. You know, like you can make an argument. You're not just going to on a whim. If we take alcohol out of the picture, we're not going to argue in a way where I could just dismiss you as someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. So now my only option with you is really to argue. And I feel like me and you are very prone potentially in the right situation to part of our identity is I'm an intelligent, intellectual guy and I can make a good argument. And when we don't agree in the wrong situation, you could feel the tension rising between us. And we're really good, I think, at recognizing it. And like you were pointing out right before we started recording, it kind of happened to us discussing like a paragraph in an article that we were reading where like you interpreted it one way, I didn't see it the way you saw it. And like instantly... I kind of wanted to understand what you were saying, but at the same time, I wanted to argue that my interpretation was right. And like you said, I don't know what eased the tension at whatever point. We just recognized that there was tension, I think. There was just a moment where we both, we didn't like say, I didn't stop and say like, hey, there's tension here. Dude. No. We should chill. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, it didn't happen until after the discussion ended where I was like, hey, this just happened. We didn't stop it in the moment. No. So at this book club, just back to this whole idea of like connecting to identity and what your identity connects to. So when you say, I'm this guy, like I'm on this guy's team, and the other person is saying, your guy's not as good as you think he is, you're like, I'm not as good as you. You think I'm not as good as you think? Uh, yeah. I think I am. Are you saying that I'm not a good person because I like this guy? And then the go back and say, but your guy is even worse than my guy. And so it's like, because the identity is so directly connected, in some small way, you're also insulting that person's identity. I mean, because if we go into smaller fields outside of politics, if I give you a book, I don't give people books anymore because of this. If I give you a book and I say, I love this book, this book's awesome. Inside, I want you to like that book. And if you come back to me and say, that book sucks, I'm going to feel like personally crushed because of that. I didn't write the book. I have nothing to do with getting the book published. I just read it and enjoyed it, but it still becomes a part of who I am. There's a line, I forget that it's from the Juno soundtrack, and it basically says that it was like, Joey liked all the books that I recommended. Even if he didn't, I wouldn't be offended. It's like a simple little line, but it captures that like idea. Like, I'm trying to get over this idea of connecting books to who I am as a person. Well, and I think this gets into that idea of social identity theory, where we identify with groups. Right. And they could be groups like political groups, but they could be, you know, bands like, you know, I'm a Pearl Jam fan and you're a Nirvana fan and I can't be in your group. And if you slag on Pearl Jam, you know, that's like attacking me because being a Pearl Jam fan is part of my identity. And you identify with, you know, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. And like we do this with even the most minimal things. Like I can remember a time in my life where it was really important to me that other people acknowledge that Pepe's Pizza in New Haven, Connecticut is the best pizza place, you know? And like, I had some personal stake in this game and I, I don't know why, and I would argue and I would argue. And if you said it wasn't good, why was I getting so upset about it? And it was really because I thought it was good. And I identified as someone who like, I know what I'm talking about and I know this place. And now you're telling me it's not good. And it's like, you're attacking me. For people who pay attention to such things, New Haven is widely regarded as a pizza mecca and is home to a few locations, most notably Frank Pepe's and Sally's, that frequently appear on best pizza lists. Locals not only identify as being defenders of New Haven pizza, or more appropriately, a beats, against other cities such as New York and Chicago, but also within New Haven, everyone has a particular place that they argue is the best. For what it's worth, and although I've certainly softened in my stance, I still happen to be a Pepe's partisan and won't really argue unless you try to tell me that modern is better. For more on the New Haven pizza scene, see the links in the show notes. 
I experienced this obviously very strongly, and I think a lot of people will connect to it as, you know, sports fandom. You know, we're both Yankees fans, right? And just saying that, you know, some people who are listening that might be Red Sox fans will, like, immediately would recoil in horror. and like They just shut us off, man. Right, They're right. They're no and longer like, listening. And, and I always found that this was a really interesting thing because, and I'm not going to pretend like I never hated on another team's fan base or anything like that, but I recognize that it's crazy for me to think that I want the Yankees to win. But I almost want the other team to lose more. And it's this negative partisanship where it's like, well, if the Yankees can't win the World Series, well, as long as the Red Sox don't win the World Series and maybe the Mets don't win the World Series, then that's okay. Or as long as that team loses, I'm okay with my team losing too, which is it's crazy because I feel like our politics very much kind of get into that situation where it's as much about the other side losing as it is about us winning, if not more. So that's the classic playoff situation. When your team loses in the playoffs and you're still invested in the sport and you still want to keep watching the sport, what you start to root for is you start to root for the other teams to beat the teams that are your team's rivals. Right. So like if the Yankees go out and the ALDS, they go out in the first round and the Red Sox are still in, you're automatically going to root for the other team. It's funny because you kind of go down the list of rivals. So it's kind of like your political affiliation has become a fandom. Yep. And uh, I was talking to my friend. And he, he had this funny joke because there's T-shirts and there's different things you could wear now that will express your political affiliation. Oh, yeah. Of course there are. So it's like the politicians go around with their merch table. So if you don't know, that's oh, I know you know, but this is a reference to like a band. So when a band shows up at a little concert venue, they're going to have their merch table and they're going to try and get you to buy a T-shirt to make a little bit of money on the side. But I like that because it's a great little joke that makes the analogy clear. Like, yeah, now politicians have their fan base and they're trying to feed into their fan base to wear that T-shirt. But then it's like this level of things. So you said the Pearl Jam versus Nirvana. Like I could wear a Pearl Jam shirt. You're wearing a Nirvana shirt. We may have a slight disagreement. You know, we'll have a little bit of a debate over which band is more important, yada, 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 Eddie versus Kurt. And, you know, it's okay. You walk away. Maybe you go to the sports teams. So maybe it's a little bit more heated. You know, it's been since you were born that, you know, my dad indoctrinated me as a Yankee fan when I was five years old. And he loved the Yankees because he uh, he loved making Mantle. So you argue with that Red Sox fan and it gets a little bit more heated, but still you walk away. But the political discussion, it's like a new level because these arguments do in very definitive ways, affect the lives of people. Yeah, the stakes are much higher. Yeah, so when you have that argument, it's a little bit harder to walk away and be like, ah, you know, guy's still cool. You know, I kind of like uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's my least favorite Nirvana song, but but I kind of like that song. So, you know, um, that's okay. But when you walk away and you're like, oh, man, that dude likes this guy? Yeah. And this guy wants to do this policy? What do I think about that dude as a person? It's like a whole different ball game with this identity. I don't know if it even goes as deep as like as conscious as what you just said, where I think like, oh, that guy likes this guy and that guy wants to do this policy. I think it's just more about literally associating with the group where it's I am this. And what we do is we create these groups and, and humans do this naturally, right, where we create these groups and just by giving them names, we begin to identify with our in-group at the expense of the out-group. And we basically just side with our group and we look for reasons to side with our group no matter what. Like as soon as we find out that somebody is in the other group or anything about the other group, we will react in a way to defend our own group or try in some way to make our in-group seem better, either by bumping our group up in some way or arguing that our group is better or trying to push the other group down. And I think what ends up happening is there's this whole dehumanization process that's going on where it's almost like the other person in that other group is lesser than you. You know, like I'm thinking of some of the Yankees and Red Sox baseball games that I've been at and some of the behavior that I've seen between the fans. I can remember being at Yankee Stadium and always thinking to myself, like, what I want to be is I want to be like an ambassador of goodwill 
from the Yankees to the Red Sox, you know, because there'd always be some Red Sox fans there in the crowd or even fans of another team if it's not the Red Sox that they're playing, right? And I want to show that we can root for opposite teams, but we could also band together and have a good time with it. But some of the behavior is just, it's absolutely atrocious. You know, like I've seen fist fights and they're having a fight because of a sport. And as someone who's experienced sports in a very emotional way at times, I can kind of understand how you could get carried away. But at the same time, that's another person and that doesn't even matter. And I think when the existential feeling that our politics have where it's like, you know, everything is life or death. It's if this one doesn't win, this is going to happen. And if this one wins, this is going to happen. And ultimately, we don't really know exactly how it's going to play out. It's more complex than just this person gets elected, this thing happens automatically. We should know by now that it doesn't really actually work that way, but it feels like it's that, right? And so we're reacting very, very negatively all the time. Because even when we transition out of the emotional and we go into the identity part of this discussion, you're still very much functioning in this system one part of your brain because there is so much tribalism that happens in your brain and the desire to belong to a group that happens in your brain is so strong. There's been experiments over time that are, they're kind of hilarious because we want to be these complex, rational beings. And you sent me an Ezra Klein interview and it's Liliana Mason, is that? Yeah, Liliana Mason. Yeah. So she brings up the minimal group paradigm and this is what you're referencing. You could take kids and all you have to do is say, you're on the Eagles and you're on the Rattlers and like automatically hatred develops for that team. She was talking about how automatically the kids on the Rattlers, they start making fun of the character of the people on the other team who they have never met. And this is the Yankees Red Sox discussion. This is where I knew it was kind of at the end, like in the uh, early 2000s when you started to see the discussion where it's like, well, we got Mariano Rivera. Oh, well, we got Big Poppy. We got Pedro Martinez. And then it goes from like stats and players to like, well, your cousin's an idiot. Oh, yeah. Well, your mom's fat. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. Why did this suddenly go from actual maybe baseball to our moral character and who our family is? Right. And now we're back in the emotions place again, because really what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to make you feel bad. That's my goal. I don't care what's going on anymore. I just want you to feel bad. Because you're not in my group. You're not in my group. It seems crazy when we're calm and we think about it in a reasonable way. But in the moment. But in the moment, it feels very real. And when your identity is activated in a negative way and you experience this, somebody seemingly attacking your group, you just feel it very strongly. And this is, again, it's an innate human thing. So um, one of the things that Liliana Mason said is the way we experience politics now through our political identity, she says the actual life and death consequences become secondary the more polarized things get, right? And so we're very polarized right now. The consequences of any policy or action of the government become secondary to did the Democrats or Republicans win by doing this, right? And so again, it, it becomes about winning. And quickly we get into this situation of cut off your nose to spite your face, right? Where it's the ultimate goal should be, you know, whatever positive outcome we want for society. And instead it's, well, even if this is actually worse off for everybody, I'm okay with it as long as you didn't win. So like one of the funny things in those minimal group paradigm experiments is where they had people estimating the number of dots like on a page or something like this. And then they sort them into overestimators and underestimators. And then people get to choose at some point. Everybody can get $5 or your group can get $4 and the other group can get 2 now, all they've done is been identified with a group of they're the people who overestimate the number of dots and they will pick. I think we should get four and the underestimators get two instead of everybody gets five and they don't know these other people. And there are people in the experiment. It's not like it's 100 percent or something like that. But people do show some bias towards just this most minimal. And that's why it's called, you know, the minimal group paradigm. The whole idea is how much difference does there need to be before people will start showing some bias towards their in-group? And basically the answer is all you need to do is name the groups. You don't need to have stakes. You don't need to have anything. So now throw in actual real life, you know, like abortion, climate change, race politics, you know, whatever you want it to be. These are like real life important things. But people are experiencing them through this in-group, out-group paradigm, and it's just almost impossible to handle. Because you could just put yourself into a position that you've been in in your life. So imagine it's a time period when the opposite party's candidate wins the presidency, 
and they enact a policy that is actually maybe for the betterment of the country. Are you willing to admit that that president who's not on your team, who's on the other side, did something good? Are you willing to say, oh, I don't like the guy and he's not from my party, but I agree with this policy? Yeah, well, I think I wonder, I mean, if you're asking me personally. It's kind of a bigger thought experiment, but yeah, personally, do you think you'd be able to say that? I think that I would, but I think that the problem is, will I access the proper information to make that judgment correctly? Like, will I even believe, like, will it be presented to me in a way that I can perceive it that way? Because Because it's presented from people who are on this team or that team. That's what I'm saying. So it's very hard to even assess this stuff in a way that would allow me to do that, even if I wanted to do that. And it's just really hard. You know, something my dad would say a lot about watching a a baseball game or something is like, I, I just want it to be a good game. And eventually I started saying back like, well, it'll be a good game if the team I'm rooting for wins. You know, it's like our perception of whether or not it was good is so tied up in whether or not the side we're on won that you almost can't, after the fact, interpret it any other way. It's very hard to do that. So, you know, I don't know if as a group we're we're even trying to do that. I don't even know that we agree on what a good outcome for the country necessarily would be, right? Because we don't have those conversations. Like we don't have a conversation of like, well, what are the things that everybody would agree that both parties are basically working towards regardless of who's there, right? Because ideally you want the people in charge of the country to be doing what's best for the country, regardless, you know, country over party. Yeah. Right. But I don't know if that happens. And even if it is happening, I don't know if we're able to know that. So it's like with your father and you talking about wanting to see a good game, because you always say that sports are your time where you turn off your rational mind. Uh, We used to watch the Giants together and that would be your thing. You used to say like all week I'm in school. I'm functioning in the system, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. We didn't use that language yet. But here on this Sunday, I just want to yell at the Giants for calling a running back toss to the right side on third and 15 like they would always do or like calling a classic giant call when they needed to get so many yards and you just wanted to turn them off so you got to think about that and that's what sports should be like sports is this um, avenue to release energy or whatever it is this is sports and that's separate it's so disturbing that these same things that we do with sports are happening in a field like politics, where it should be in the system too, where it should be in the thought process. It shouldn't be about like, I'm going to sit down for this presidential debate and I'm just going to shut off my rational mind and I'm just going to get emotionally involved in like when my candidate is saying the right, that's no, you should be listening to what they're saying and trying to make an informed decision about like whatever comes out of that. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about that. And I'm wondering, have people ever been able to do any of that? I can't imagine at any point in American history, and I've read a little bit, you've read more history than me, but this idea that there was any previous time where people were sitting down and reasonably talking through this stuff, just get that out of your mind. This is basically the norm. You know, what's different is like the media environment changes. So, you know, right now it's easier for the more radical elements to be amplified than it ever was before. So I think what happens is you get these extreme positions on either side and they just are in our face so much that we very easily overestimate how much those arguments represent the totality of an entire group of people. We say the right or the left. And then we take the most extreme version of the right and the left and we apply it to the entire group. And it's just not correct. And so we don't even operate in any kind of reality that maps onto actual people and their lived experience and who they are as individuals. Yeah, we love to apply this general, broader theoretical framework that doesn't match the specific individual in front of you. If I go back to my fire pit and I look at all the people around that fire, I respect all those people. Those people are generous, wonderful people. They've been very nice to me. There's a reason why they're among the five or six people that I want to hang out with in this time period when that's about as many people as I can hang out with. So that's how I try to judge them, based on the person of them that I know. So even if they have a different affiliation with me, 
that affiliation is a different part of their identity. It's not just solely who they are. Mm-hmm. Like this guy who's arguing for something I don't agree with has had me over to his house, has given me this amazing meal, has had discussions with me about literature and things of that nature. And I really like and respect him. And I don't care that he's on this team at this point. I think that one of the beauties of democracy is that there's this plurality or diversity of views, right? That's one of the major ideas. It's that we have this freedom to believe these different things or have these different ideas, and we are able to then still coexist in the same geographic space or whatever. And I think that the idea that entire swaths of the population are just completely wrong and reprehensible people because they happen to vote for someone different than who I vote for just seems off to me. Even if you identify with one party or the other or one candidate or the other, even if you believe that the other person's candidate is going to do things that you disagree with, that's not the same thing as that person doing those things. Everybody has different beliefs and votes for candidates for different reasons. And you know what you intend and you know what you believe and you know what's happening in your mind. And the idea that you're going to say that, well, because this person casts a vote for candidate A, that means that they are then responsible for anything that candidate A might do at any point in the future. I just don't know that that's reasonable. I'm trying to make a nuanced point here about how we conduct our group politics versus how we discuss politics with people in our lives. And it is not to say that people in a democracy bear no responsibility for the actions of elected leaders, nor is it to excuse hateful, derogatory, or dehumanizing rhetoric. As it is famously stated in the Declaration of Independence, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Politics and elections absolutely do have consequences, and plans, policies, and legislation implemented or not implemented do have impacts in the world, as do the words and ideas expressed by elected leaders. That being said, people's identities are complex, and their perception of the world and how they see things in any given situation equally so, and I do not believe that there is a one-to-one correlation between individuals and the governance of a particular politician or party. If we disagree, then it is our job to continually do the work, as hard as it is, to understand multiple perspectives, even if they seem inimical to our own, and we must never forget our shared humanity. As the philosopher John Stuart Mill said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good, and no one may have been able to refute them. But if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion. Nor is it enough that he should hear the opinions of adversaries from his own teachers, presented as they state them, and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them. He must know them in their most plausible and persuasive form. Before we get into this ending of how maybe we go forward with this, I just want to look at one more extending of this naming thing that our mind does wrong, because this is kind of, you know, my beautiful illusions philosophy is if we start understanding this neuroscience, maybe can we get over some of this neuroscience? So just extending on this idea of once you put group names on something, you are against the other group, they become an other. It's also once you name a policy, it becomes part of that other group. And I just remember back, it was Jimmy Kimmel. You know, it's not the most well-constructed psychological experiment, but they did this bit where they went out in the street and they were like, would you like the Affordable Care Act? Would you like this policy that we're pushing forward where people all get affordable health care? And people were like, yeah, yeah. And then they would say to that same person, they'd say like, well, what about Obamacare? Would you like this concept of Obamacare? And the person would say, no, no. And We know that those names are both the same policy, but because that one had, you know, that team members. And you could apply this to the other side where the Republican has this idea that might be an idea that you say it to somebody who's a Democrat, but you don't connect it to a Republican person. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. But we do this to everything when there's a name applied to it. Yeah. There's this party over policy research by this guy, Jeffrey Cohen, where basically he does this experiment where he 
has these people come in and he gives them two different welfare policies. One is very stringent. One is very generous. And he randomly assigns them to Democrats or Republicans as as a policy proposal. Right. So sometimes the Democrats have the stringent policy. Sometimes the Republicans have the stringent policy and vice versa. But the only thing the candidates in the study know is here's the two policies. Here's which one is the Democrat policy. Here's which one is the Republican policy. So what he finds is that the people choose which policy is better. They choose it based on which party they identify with more. So despite what they might believe coming into the study, right? So their ideology should align with either more stringent or more generous. But regardless of what their prior ideology is, they will pick the policy consistently that aligns with the party they identify with. So this goes to what you were just saying, even if they generally would agree that I think it's a more generous policy, but the generous policy is the Democrat policy and they're a Republican. Well, then they will say, well, no, the stringent policy is better. And then they will spontaneously generate a bunch of reasons why to justify that choice. And no matter how much information they're given, that result seems to hold. And so it's interesting that the label itself, and again, it gets back to this idea that the winning of your side is more important than what actually is going on. And this seems to be an innate kind of human behavior. And we activate this very much. The other thing I'm wondering about is, and this is part of our bigger conversation, maybe of beautiful illusions in general, do these experiences that we constantly reinforce as being members of these different groups, like fandom, for example, of a sports team, does that bleed over into the way we experience something like politics? Or is it just, it's not going to matter. Like if sports didn't exist, this would still be just the same problem. Or does passionately being a part of any identity influence the way that we then experience in-group perception with anything that we identify with. So I guess what I'm saying in the fanciest possible way is, is it bad that we are crazy sports fans that refer to the team as we, as if we play on the field and experience the wins and losses as if it was like this life and death thing. You know, and as I say this, I'm thinking about game four of the World Series was last night. The Dodgers blew it with two outs and I'm not a Dodgers fan, but they blew the game literally with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. They're about to go up three games to one in the World Series. They're winning by a run. The Rays are down to their last strike and he gives up a hit. The tying run scores, they make an error and the winning run scores and they lose the game. And when I woke up, when I saw that highlight, I was like, if that was me watching that game and that was the Yankees, I literally wouldn't have been able to sleep. I would have been so mad. I would have like, it would have been completely irrational and unreasonable. And I would have been like, I can't believe we did that. How did we, that, and that be mad about all these things. And does that impact me in some way when I experience my political identity? So I feel like our society is definitely structured to practice more system one thinking than system two thinking. And uh, from what I've read, you can practice system two thinking and you can build up how much system two you're ending up able to do. And you can get better at this in certain areas. And just from my bigger philosophy, I'd like to think that we can do this in a broader sense. And I think it's a cultural thing that keeps us from doing this. I think we do fall quickly into these groups. And for various reasons. I mean, it feels really good to fall in these groups. It very much fits our whole evolutionary model that we want to be in these groups. This is how we survive. This is how our mind thinks we survive. So can we, in this moment where we're starting to understand all of this, can we possibly move a little bit more away from it? And can we do better? Can we do better with the political discussions? When I walk away from that book club, I'm thinking, "Uh oh, is the next book club screwed? Are we now going to have this same discussion? Is it going to be awkward? How can we do better at this if we're going to have this political discussion, which I think for a while I mentioned before that I'm getting near the crest of this hill, but I've been confused and frustrated. And for a while I've been thinking, then maybe we shouldn't talk about politics. Maybe with friends we shouldn't talk about politics. What's the point? Does anything really get done in a fire pit discussion? Uh, are we enacting policy? But you should be able to sit down and talk about politics with your friends. I just think you need to be you need to engage system too. You can't back into the discussion. Mm -hmm. You can't just let it happen. You shouldn't be drinking while you're doing it, to be honest. I mean, it's fun to talk when you're drinking. Uh, the Yankee Red Sox argument, fine. Have that when you're drinking. You know, 
um, depending on the people. Uh, the people I know, nobody's going to get into a fist fight. I mean, some people maybe, but the people I know, nobody's getting into a fist fight. Definitely talk about bands. Definitely debate like whether the Beatles are more important or the Stones. I'm on the Beatles full on. I'll, I'll debate you all night about that. You could debate whether John Lennon's more important than Paul McCartney. I've had that debate. I'll go with you three beers deep. We could go until 3 a.m. and I'll be miserable the next day, <laughs> but uh, not because of our discussion, just because of the beer and my body can't take it at 42 years old. But how do we set this up to have this political discussion in the right way? So I'm not going to steal this quote from you, but I think your father pretty much gets it going. What does your father say? Well, he says, don't talk about politics, religion, or somebody's tomato sauce. But I think he says that because he recognizes, or maybe he doesn't actually recognize it, but he understands, you know, intuitively that really what you're doing when you have those conversations is you're having the emotional identity conversation. You're very rarely going to accomplish anything. And I would like to say that there is wisdom in that because I don't believe we should be sacrificing relationships with the actual people that we know and love, that we know who they are as human beings to these broader category labels that we want to place on them and then saddle them with the entire cultural conception of what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to vote for a Democrat or a Republican. Because a lot of people don't even identify necessarily with one party or the other, like they're not registered. They just happen to vote for one candidate or the other, or they express a belief, which we then assume means that they also believe all these other things, right? Like if I start talking to you about climate change and I'm talking about all the things we need to do to fight climate change, you might make an assumption that, well, he's also probably anti-guns and he's probably also wants to tax the rich. And, you know, like we, we automatically do this stuff. I think where my dad's correct is that you should not be engaging in these conversations against other people's will without them knowing in advance that this is a thing that I think we need to talk about, right? Because People will feel emotionally hijacked in the sense that, you know, I wasn't prepared to have this conversation with you right now. And now I feel uncomfortable and you're going to end up harming a relationship perhaps that you've had with this person for years and years and years, and you're not going to get anything out of it. So I think what makes much more sense to me is instead of relying on this unconscious system one process that we always fall into when we're not being thoughtful about how we engage, you know, basically saying either a, instead of me coming at it from a place of me wanting to prove to you that I'm right. And my way is better coming from a place of, I just really want to understand. I want to learn. I want to learn why you put onions in your sauce because my dad didn't put onions in his sauce and he taught me not to do that. Right. And, you know, so when we have the tomato sauce joke, you know, the funny thing is that that person makes their sauce. It might be their great grandmother's recipe and it was passed down three times. And now you're going to show up and be like, ah, oh, you do that. That's gross. And now you've not just impugned them. You've impugned their mother and their grandmother and their great grandmother and their entire heritage and every meal they've ever sat down to. And who wants to do that? I think if we just be more intentional about the conversations that we're going to have. And I don't know how practical this is, but my thought about it is you want to let people know like, hey, this is important. I think we should have a conversation about this. Are you up for that? You know, maybe we can chat for a while. I know there's a little bit of tension between us. I just had a really good conversation this morning with a good friend of both of ours. And basically, that's what I did. I talked to him during the week. I wanted to get his perspective before me and you had this conversation because I thought he would have an interesting point of view because we don't always see things the same way. And I said to him, hey, I want to talk. This is what I want to talk about. And we had a conversation. We talked for almost an hour and it was great. We didn't fight. We didn't argue. We didn't disagree. He had a lot of really interesting things to say. And we had way more commonality than you would think we would have if I just told you ahead of time, well, he's this and I'm this and this is who we vote for. You would have thought like, well, there's no way these two guys are going to agree. We, we agreed about practically every single thing we said. Coincidentally, he happens to be a Red Sox fan, and we've also agreed about baseball for years and years and years. We see it kind of the same way, even though we're highly partisan in the team we root for. And I just want that for people because it makes me sad to see entire groups of people being dehumanized. And it makes me sad to see relationships suffering and people feeling like they can't talk about anything. And, and I think politics is a really important thing for us to be able to talk about. So I had a similar experience with one of my teacher friends. We were in the copy room with our masks on more than six feet apart. 
and I was like, you know, I want to talk to you about this, but I don't, because um, I've been asking myself, like I said, I've been confused and frustrated. And I told him, I was like, I've been confused and frustrated. And you know what he said back to me? He said, Jeff, I've been confused and frustrated too. He's a history teacher. He's a political junkie. Like this is his life. He became a history teacher because this is what he enjoys doing. He reads everything he can possibly read. And he hasn't been reading politics lately. And, and then another teacher walked in. So my friend, he's conservative. The other teacher walked in and she started talking about the pandemic and she started talking about how awful the Republicans have been on it. And she started slamming that. And because my friend is a teacher, she automatically assumed that he was a liberal because that's probably the majority. That's the demographic in the teaching profession right now. So she just got him into the discussion. And I was really impressed because he didn't bother to debate her. He knew that wasn't the moment to have that debate. And he just said, yeah, mask, we should all be wearing masks. Yeah. And he just grabbed onto that. And when she left, I was like, do all people just assume you're a Democrat because you're a teacher? And he's like, yep. And I was like, how do you do it? And he's like, well, just like that. I just find the thing that I agree with them on. Like masks are pretty obviously a thing that people should be wearing. And I just go with that. And we try to build from there. And we try and build from there. Yeah. So my contention basically is that, you know, to bring it back as we kind of finish up here to this three conversations in a difficult conversation frame, my contention is that we like to think that we're having the what happened conversation or the fact-based conversation where we're convincing people of things and that we like to think of ourselves as open-minded learners. But I think actually most of the time we're in the message delivery mode. We're trying to convince other people we're right and we're really stuck in the emotional or the identity part of the conversation. Uh, And we don't necessarily recognize it and we spin our wheels and we don't get anywhere. I like this quote from Teresa Behan. I heard her on the Mindscape podcast where she basically says like one of the things we need to recognize about the identity of others is that we need to take seriously the feeling of righteous indignation on all sides. Not grant that all indignations are equally righteous, but grant that everyone experiences their indignations equally righteously, meaning we all believe that we are good people and we are doing the right thing for the most part. And we experience our political beliefs in a way that we feel them deeply and we believe that we're well-meaning and we want what's best, right? And so that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily right, but it means that the passion that you feel for your argument, I feel the same thing for mine. And if we're going to engage each other, we need to recognize the common humanity in each other. And we have to be more intentional about trying to engage from a place of understanding one another as opposed to convincing each other that I'm right and you're wrong and I'm better and you're worse and emotions have no role in this and your identity and my identity don't come into play here. That's essentially kind of what my friend's starting to do. And I keep saying I'm cresting a hill, I think. I think I'm getting over the confusion and the frustration of this because I think Uh, What ends up happening is this type of respect that has to develop. And I think context is tremendously important to the discussion. And being on the same footing going in, knowing that you're going to have the discussion is important. And then knowing that occasionally book clubs are going to get blown up by a political discussion. Somebody's going to look over your shoulder while you're making a sauce and ask why you put in sugar. Somebody's going to do that. And what I'm starting to realize as I, you know, build this beautiful illusions philosophy is that a lot of this, if we want to overcome our neuroscience, which seems like an impossible task, but if we want to, is our ability to reflect is one of the most important parts of that. So we're going to have a book club blow up and our friend's going to get into an argument and one of them's going to cry and we're going to feel bad. And I'm going to text you afterwards and say, we need to do this podcast about (laughs) politics and we're going to talk about it. But then after that discussion, you know, what do you do? So how do you overcome your tribalism? How do you do this? So what I did is I went inside and I was like, I have this phone and this phone can do amazing things. And I did some research. And so I happen to be on this guy's team and I happen to like this guy. And I was like, why? Why do I really like this guy? Like, is he as good as I think he is? Did he really do all these things I want to say he did? What do I actually know? So I went back and I did some research and, you know, he wasn't perfect. Oh, shocking. Yeah. A human being wasn't perfect. (laughs) He screwed up occasionally. The central core 
of his political philosophy, his theory on how we should, uh, you know, be better society, I still agree with. But he, you know, wasn't the perfect human being I wanted to be. And the other guy, you know what? Guess what, Darren? He's also not perfect. He's also not perfect. And they both screwed up. So maybe my team isn't the only team to think about. And maybe we should include all of the teams in some way, shape, or form I, at I just, certain times. I just want to see a good game, Jeff. I just want to see a good game. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org. 